0: Hello and welcome back to Gentleman, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna, I'm your host. Today I want to talk about polarity, and specifically male polarity. This is an idea and a theory that suggests that there are two separate fundamental energies, masculine and feminine, and that each one has its own charge, its own polarity. The theory suggests that these energies aren't necessarily localized to men or women, rather that whoever you are and whatever your gender, you're going to have both masculine and feminine energies in some proportion. Polarity theory goes on to reason that the difference between these two energies and the fundamental charge, the opposite charge, is what creates dynamism and attraction in relationships. And so in the most basic example, you have a cisgendered man and a cisgendered woman. And if the man is living into and fulfilling the male ideals that go into giving male polarity charge, and similarly, if the woman is living into the roles and expectations that come along with the feminine polarity, that then when these two people couple, they'll have a strong attraction and, as is often promised, a strong sexual relationship and a dynamic and enduring relationship. This concept has been popularized by a guy named David Data. He wrote books such as The Way of the Superior Man. And David and his teachings have really exploded in the last maybe 10 to 20 years. I see his relationship ideas and the concept of male-female polarity being shared and replicated by people all the way up the chain to Tony Robbins, for example. David Data's work has had a lot of impact, and there are a lot of people walking around ascribing to this belief. I want to note that David himself was a follower of Adidas Samraj, who was a teacher, and perhaps you could even call him a guru, who himself taught polarity. My understanding was that his teaching of polarity was much broader than just these two masculine and feminine polarities, but this was part of what he taught. And so there are some famous anecdotes from his followers, for example, married men and women saying that Adidas Samraj had actually prescribed them to work on their polarity when their relationships were becoming too friendly, so to speak. When they were slipping into this normal straight trope of We just feel like best friends living together and we don't have any more sexual or romantic dynamism in our relationship. So this concept traces back at least as far as Adidas Samraj. It may have some deeper roots and some older teachings. Some people may connect it to Tantra, although I want to be really careful about making linkage to lineages such as that because they're so often misunderstood and I would say even abused in the contemporary era and in contemporary New Age thought. But regardless, this idea predates David Data. Anyway, once David started teaching polarity, the idea really expanded like wildfire. It caught on very quickly, and there were so many people really hungry for this kind of teaching, especially in New Age and self-help circles, for example. And it's not hard for me to see why. The idea of polarity and some of other of David's teachings appeal to a lot of people, especially men who are feeling lost and who are looking for ways to either reboot their lives or reclaim their power, reclaim a sense of agency, perhaps. A very common story that you hear today is of men feeling disempowered, men feeling like they're not measuring up. Perhaps men experiencing struggle in their dating life, maybe they're feeling uninspired in their relationships, maybe they're even feeling rejected in their relationships, and that's contributing to a feeling of insecurity or feeling like they're not measuring up. So this feeling of men not measuring up and wanting to find ways through that is really common these days, and David Data's teachings speak very compellingly to that audience and to couples wanting to bring the spice back into their relationships and their sex lives. Lots of people feel lost and they really want blueprints. And so strong teachings like these, teachings that are very prescriptive, teachings that say, just do this, behave this way, plug into this larger notion of who it is that you should be and what you're supposed to be doing, and you'll see success in your life people are really hungry for this kind of information because there is so much information out there and it's really easy to get lost in it. It's really easy to get overwhelmed. And so when someone comes along and they have such a strong message and the message feels so intuitively correct, it's often easy to get swept up in it and to go along with it. Now, why do I say that this has the ring of truth for so many people or that it feels so right? This is because I believe that this gendered notion of polarity and the broader package of what David Data teaches about relationships is really just a repackaging of some very old and some very problematic patriarchal gender roles. So I'll go a little bit deeper on this. What polarity is essentially saying is that when men act the way they're supposed to, and when women act the way they're supposed to, they will naturally be more drawn to each other or more attracted to each other. And the prescription for what these supposed to's should look like tends to follow a very old school idea about how men and women tend to behave and how they're supposed to behave. And even though David and perhaps Adidas Samraj go to great lengths to emphasize that they're talking about fundamental energies and not anyone's particular gender, it becomes abundantly obvious that the so-called masculine polarity energy is basically just male role modeling. And likewise for the feminine energy, it really closely follows traditional ideas about how women tend to be and how they're supposed to be. So don't let the wool get pulled over your eyes as it relates to this. And this connects to a broader topic, which is what is a masculine energy anyway? What is a feminine energy anyway? A lot of people are eager to make this decoupling because in some way it's almost like retrofitting older ideas onto newer ones. Or perhaps, for example, in the queer community, you might hear people talk about how Maybe I'm non-binary, but I have more of a masculine energy, right? Or maybe I'm in a same-sex or a same-gender coupling, but one of us tends to exhibit a more masculine energy and the other one tends to exhibit a more feminine energy. And while I acknowledge the fluidity in this, I think the very concept of there being fundamental masculine and feminine energies is potentially problematic, and I'm not sure that I buy the fundamental notion of it to begin with. I am tempted to think that it is, like I said, a repackaging of an old idea to make it a little bit more palatable in a more contemporary context. My sense is that when you really dive into this and you start critically trying to apply this concept, you start teasing it out a bit. You'll probably start to realize that, like I said before, it's just repackaging of old patriarchal ideas. The reality is that people and especially contemporary people are very nuanced and attempting to describe someone with any kind of a broad brush, such as a masculine energy or a feminine energy, it can have its uses in a kind of cultural shorthand way in the same way that people ascribing genders, male, female, non-binary, can be a kind of shorthand. They have a certain heuristic quality to them. But as soon as we try to get any more depth and nuance, any assumption that is raised around using these terms will cease to serve us very well. But I think there are a lot of people out there who are still trying to find their place in a setting of typical roles. They're still trying to find comfort, within these gendered notions, and they're still trying to make them work for people, or they're still trying to work themselves into the roles. And so when someone comes along with a really compelling message telling you, hey, if you just tap into this archetypal energy that you already have, and if your partner is doing the same, your relationship life is going to get better. Well, that's exciting. I can do that. That feels familiar to me. And so what I've seen with this is you'll get couples, especially cis straight couples, saying, yeah, our relationship could use a bit of a reboot. Things have gotten a bit stale. Let's work ourselves more into these roles and see what happens, see if it adds a dynamism to our relationship. Now, here's where it starts to get especially unfortunate. What are these roles? Let's start with a quote from David himself. He says, Never tell a man with a masculine sexual essence that he is wrong, and never tell a woman with a feminine sexual essence that she is ugly. Sound familiar? Men want to feel right and powerful? And women want to feel pretty. This is such a kind of wah, 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 wah return to ideas that are so old and tired and dated. I just really want this kind of thinking to go away. So much harm comes from this. I've actually read David's book, The Way of the Superior Man, and it's full of some pretty ridiculous advice. For example, one chapter suggests that when your woman's being overly emotional, one thing you can try is to just yell at her louder than you've ever yelled at her and then laugh. I'm not kidding or exaggerating. That is an actual recommendation in the book. And it's really hard as any kind of an actual grown-up reading this book to take the advice at all seriously. It has reduced men and women to these almost comical caricatures of what traditional gender roles suggest we should be. None of the advice in this book is going to fly in any emotionally mature relationship between two adults grounded in their own sovereignty. let's go a bit deeper into the specifics. Some of the problematic assumptions about men that David talks about in his book are as follows. He suggests that men are really mission-driven, that they have to have some kind of world-changing idea that they're pursuing, that they need to have an almost pathological commitment to whatever their mission in life is, and that that mission has to come before anything else in their lives. He talks about how men need to be emotionally grounded at all times and that any display of vulnerability or indecision or uncertainty will be perceived by his woman partner as weakness, which is as tired as it is uninspired. He talks about how masculine polarity can become depolaritized when men are required to take on the role of a caretaker, or if their partner displays any kind of questioning of their decision-making or their direction or their ability to do something. And let's just stop right there. How successful do you realistically expect any committed relationship to be in the long term if one person is not even allowed to question the other person's judgment or decisions? Ever. And that, if that happens, it will constitute some kind of existential threat to the romantic charge of the relationship. This is such an unuseful and reductionistic way of imagining relationships. These assumptions about the masculine energy, and through extension men, are that people with a masculine energy aren't allowed to deeply question their own judgment. They're not allowed to be vulnerable or insecure, let alone show that vulnerability or insecurity to a partner. They're not allowed to have any amount of instability in their emotional expression. They're not allowed to be nurturing, to be very sensitive, to be any amount of submissive or supportive. And so what we see here is the same old fitting men into small boxes and telling them that if they just tighten up enough, and if they're just grounded enough, and if they're productive enough, basically, if they get enough done and they're committed enough to their work, that they'll be rewarded. So all of these ideas are basically thousands of years old. Now on the feminine side, it's even more cringe-inducing in some ways. David Data's view of women and the feminine polarity is that they are fundamentally moody and mercurial and that they can't be taken seriously. He further goes on to say that women actually rely on men's groundedness and that it is a man's role to be this kind of neutral, stoic sounding board for a woman's unpredictable and basically hysterical, fundamental nature. In his book, he talks a lot about how if a woman's having an emotional moment with a man or expressing uncertainty or a feeling of overwhelm, that the man should just kind of lighten the mood, crack a joke, tickle her, or even maybe just transition into some hot and heavy sex right there on the spot. That a man should kind of trivialize and ultimately not take seriously anything that his woman partner says to him or that his feminine energy partner says to him when they're in a state of emotional volatility as he conceives it. Women in David's worldview don't want to drive or have to make decisions and the theory is that they actually lose respect for men when they're put in situations where they have to do that. These assumptions don't leave much room for women to, for example, be assertive or self-directed. They certainly don't allow for women leading anything or wearing the pants in a relationship, being a fundamental decision maker or a breadwinner. It doesn't give women much room to be taken seriously in any of that communication or in any moods that they might be having or experiencing. And it also puts women right back into this role of having to be nurturing all the time and having to ultimately submit to the men in their lives. So, I mean, we're really taking it back to the Stone Age on some of this stuff. A lot of these teachings basically pretend that feminism doesn't even exist, and the book kind of neatly skirts around a lot of the problematic aspects that these teachings bring up in relation to contemporary feminist thinking. So what I want to make clear is that there's nothing particularly new or interesting or exciting or functional about what's being taught here. The teaching basically suggests if men do the things that men have typically been rewarded for in the past, and if women do the same, they'll tend to be more attracted to each other and get along better with each other. One of the problems about this is that to a certain extent it's actually true. So if the idea of the traditional gender norms is appealing to you, either consciously or unconsciously, then when someone comes along who fits into the role you expect them to fit into, you're going to feel good about it. You probably will be attracted to them you may indeed find yourself feeling more passionately towards them. The problem isn't so much that these teachings never work. I think for some people it does actually work to do what David suggests. If you're a man who's in a relationship with a woman who expects you to be a breadwinner, who expects you to be really decisive, who expects you to call her on her shit and stand up to her in the way that a real man would... And if you do all of those things, then of course she's going to approve of you more and she's going to be more attracted to you. But the question remains, is that actually healthy? Is that actually a relationship that healthy people want to be in? Is that actually a replicable model which enriches people's personal lives and which makes our culture happier and more resilient and leaves more room for the nuance of the contemporary experience? And my argument is not at all. And so what I think is going to happen is that there are a number of people, regardless of their gender, who are going to see initial success in their relationships following this advice, and they're going to feel really good about that, and they're going to feel really enforced by it. But in the long run, it is my belief that these same people are going to find their lives and their relationships and their opportunities actually narrowing over time and not expanding. People are going to find themselves falling into the same old traps. And I also think that these teachings apply additional pressure that may have even not been there before. So if a man accepts this blueprint and he accepts that in order to be attractive and sexy to his partner, he has to live up to the blueprint. As soon as something goes wrong, as soon as he's not able to do that, now he has this additional pressure. Oh, well, David Data said that my woman's not going to want to have sex with me anymore. And if the woman's following the blueprint and she knows what the man's blueprint is supposed to be, this may add additional pressure on her side to say, yeah, my man's falling short now. I have a rubric for what he's supposed to be doing and he's not doing it. So I think this has the potential to introduce additional pressure and additional harm into relationships. And one of the biggest issues I have with all of this is that there's not a lot of room or nuance or acknowledgement of difference here. So what I see a lot of contemporary people really struggling with is that they have a sense that the old thing didn't work, or they have a sense that the old thing is going out of style, and they don't really know what to do about it. And this teaching basically doubles down. This teaching says, no, the old thing was cool. We're just going to repackage it in this new way. We're going to tweak a few of the dials, and we're going to give you a different kind of spiritual understanding of this stuff, and that's going to take care of it. But what people are going to find is that the old thing wasn't working, and so doubling down on it will continue not to work. The most important point here is that people are nuanced, and they're complicated, and they don't fit into binaries. Saying that one person fulfills the masculine role in a relationship and that another person fulfills the feminine role is so limiting. It's so boring. It absolves people of so much of the need to actually understand each other to listen to each other, to be sensitive to each other, to be sensitive to themselves and what it is they're looking for or wanting to explore or express in their lives. This leaves very little room for self-discovery and it leaves very little room for collective discovery in a relationship. And I'll tell you what, simply switching it up, saying, okay, now today you get to be the masculine and I'll be the feminine is not the kind of exploration that I'm talking about here. That doesn't cut it either. The idea that we can, oh, we can just experiment with switching the roles. You can be masculine in this one area and I'll be masculine in this other area. Again, it's like, why do we need to do that? Why do we need to label it that way? Why do we need to have these roles be so prescribed? Is it because that's the best we can do? Is it because that's the most we can imagine into how things could be? Is it because we're really lacking that much imagination for what else could come into our relationship? In my experience, truly present and empowered people are open to redefining themselves and their roles in whatever it is that they're doing. So they're in a state of constant self-assessment. How is this working? Do I like this? Do other people like this? Is this feeling integral to who I am or to who I want to be? Truly empowered people also have room for doubt, and they have room for improvement. So a person who's more at peace with themselves will say, "Hmm, I'm not sure if I'm right about that. Or I'm still learning about that. I don't know. Or whoops, I messed up on that thing. I'll try to do better next time. Or even I'm sorry, saying to your partner, look, I really messed up there, and I see how it hurt you, and I don't want to do that again. That's not who I want to be. I came out of integrity with who I want to be, and I'm going to try better. That's a very responsible, grown-up way to relate to another person. And so I feel the question shouldn't be, which role am I in, and how well am I cleaving to that role? The question should more be, who do I really feel like I am, and how do I really feel like I want to be, and how do I really feel like I want this relationship to be? And then, of course, having your partner answer those same questions. And then the question is, how do we negotiate that? How do we come together? What do we create together? I'm less interested in what David Data thinks is sexy in a couple, and I'm more interested in what that couple thinks is sexy. How does that couple express attraction? How does that couple reinforce the sexiness of the two people participating in it? What were the fundamental qualities that brought those people together to begin with? And do they still apply? Do they simply need to be kind of rediscovered and polished off and had space and time set aside to reconnect on those levels? Or has there been a fundamental shift in one or both of the people in the relationship that requires change, that requires a renegotiation or a reimagining or entering into the unknown of, I don't know, let's see how it unfolds. Let's allow for new possibilities here. One of the reasons that approaches like this don't seem to be as popular is that they're not that grammable. They're not easy to post on social media. They're not easy to make a quick video about. They're not easy to write a quick book about. You can draw a couple of hard lines in the sand and tell people that if they want to improve their lives, they have to cross the line or they have to not cross the line. And that's about it. And this leads to this very kind of bite-sized information consumer culture that we see so often in the internet age. People want to get results quickly. They want to read one book that's going to change their relationship. They want to have a bulleted list of things to do. They want to have some assurance from someone. This is going to work out. It's going to be great. You're going to have a bunch more sex. Your partner's going to think you're much cooler than they did before. Everything's going to be fine, kiddo. It's a very childlike expectation of how life is supposed to be. And what I find is that a more sober, mature adult assessment of relationships in life tends to leave room for the nuance. It tends to leave room for the unknown. It tends to acknowledge that people are different. It acknowledges that people change. It acknowledges that very many seemingly conflicting qualities can exist in one person. It acknowledges that no one is going to cleave to their gender or their supposed role in society the way they appear to. Quite simply, every single person is their own person and they're different. And in order for that to work in relationships, it requires self-knowing, it requires discussion, it requires compromise, it requires negotiation, it requires agreement. It requires patience, forgiveness, and probably a lot of support from friends, family, community, therapists. Relationships aren't easy, especially if you're trying to be in one that lasts a long time. You know, talk to any couple that's been together for two or more decades, and they'll tell you they've been through all kinds of stuff. You know, every day it's something different. Every year it's something different. So while I know that contemplating the complexity of all of this is uncomfortable, what I want to say is that I think it's much more valuable for people to focus on building real hard skills than it is on trying to get this like solve your relationship quick kind of advice. If you've been enjoying the Gentleman Podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. If you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, help me out by doing one of the following, leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow following on social media and liking the content gentleman podcast is our instagram handle you can also find us on youtube at gentleman podcast three words i really appreciate your help and your support it's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well thank you I also want to tackle the notion that it is a lack of polarity, which is robbing relationships of intimacy. What I see in my life and what I've seen experts talk about and therapists talk about, people who actually study data and who study this stuff tend to talk about different things that will have an effect on lowering people's sex desire for each other or lowering their intimacy. So these are things such as unresolved disagreements and misunderstandings when people are holding resentments towards each other and they're also not seeing each other. They're not allowing each other to really be who they are and they're not finding ways to meet each other and to create some kind of reconnection. I would say that's, in my opinion, the main challenge that drives people apart. Then obviously stress, whether it relates to money or other assets, the stress of raising children, the stress of careers, the stress of living in the contemporary era. There are all kinds of other stresses which, when combined and over time, will weigh people down and will prevent them from having space for the kind of spontaneity and the kind of curiosity, the kind of excitement that typically fuels passion and attraction. Either partner losing respect for the other is a huge killer in terms of passion and attraction. And I think this is something that David Data's teachings do recognize is that it's really important for partners to see each other and respect each other. And that wherever there's a lack of respect, you'll typically see a decrease in healthy relationship dynamics. I just think that David got it wrong in terms of what that respect actually looks like. And then, of course, unresolved traumatic events that create separation. Any relationship that goes on long enough is going to have one or more kind of big blowouts or big disagreements or big moments that both people look back to as saying, wow, that really drove a wedge between us. And those will need to get worked on and examined and reconciled. And then, of course, as I talked about before, people just change over time. And so sometimes whatever it was that was there that fueled the initial attraction won't look the same or it'll be expressed in a different way or people will have to find other ways to see each other or other ways to fuel that fire. So a person who talks more on this axis and whose teachings and assessment of what actually works in relationships that I really respect is Esther Perel. Now, if you've been paying attention at all to the media and social media, you've probably seen Esther's rise happening. Like David Data, she's been exploding in popularity. And I think for good reason. What I've seen from her teaching so far and from her learning so far is a very sober and resilient and pragmatic approach to relationships. Esther talks a lot about how to grow and maintain and tend to eroticism in relationships, and she does a really good job of decoupling eroticism from straight-up sex. So when a lot of people hear the term eroticism, their minds usually go to something smarty or something really racy or something really explicitly sexy. But Esther's notion of what eroticism is and her understanding of where it starts and how it is collectively created and grown is so much deeper than that. I just recently read one of her articles. It's on her blog, and it's called In Long-Term Relationships, When Do You Find Yourself Most Drawn to Your Partner? I'll put a link to this in the show notes. It's a short read, and it's really excellent. And she outlines four ways that people tend to find themselves most drawn. And I like that she used that phrase, most drawn, because she's moving beyond the simple notion of attraction. She's moving beyond that impulse that makes you say, oh, I want to take my partner's clothes off right now. That will kind of happen naturally in a relationship when people are feeling themselves drawn to their partners, when they're seeing their partners in a compelling light. And that's what she's really focusing on here. So she outlines four things in her article. One is, when I see my partner in their element, when I see them doing that thing that they do well or those things that they excel at and those things that other people appreciate them for, that tends to have a really strong effect on our attraction to people. Second one is, when they're away, when we are apart, when we reunite. So having distance from people is another tried and true way of reigniting passion. We give ourselves a chance to miss the other person. We give ourselves a chance to experience other parts of our lives, and then that adds to a richness that we can bring back and share with each other. It tends to just kind of put the sparkle back a little bit. The third one is when they surprise me, and this isn't just like a surprise vacation or a surprise party or something like that. It's just anything that's kind of unexpected, which gives you a deeper view into who that person is and who they could be. So she talks about just someone making a wardrobe change, wearing something they don't usually wear, or maybe cracking a really unexpected joke that makes you laugh a lot. Even those small things can bring an element of newness to the relationship. They can remind you, wow, I still have things to learn about this person. And that enigmatic space is very erotic. Imagining who someone could be instead of knowing who exactly they are tends to be more sexy. And then the fourth is when I see them through the eyes of another, which I kind of hinted at in the first one as well, which is just when we see other people admiring our partners or when we see other people rewarding our partners for being who they are. Maybe even if we see other people being attracted to our partners, we remind ourselves, wow, I see them that way too, or I'm attracted to them as well. So this article is fantastic. It's a great place to start. If you want to know more about Esther, you can listen to her podcast, Where Should We Begin? She's also written a number of books. The most famous ones are probably Mating in Captivity" and also The State of Affairs, which talks about infidelity. So I highly recommend her work and I would offer her as a healthy and more contemporarily resourced voice in this conversation. I think she's a lot closer to the mark about what's actually going to make a difference in people's relationships and what's actually going to preserve passion and keep people interested in each other. I want to say, though, that what's even more important than what Esther outlined in her article is in taking some time to develop introspection about what are your own bullet points. What are your own things that remind you why you're attracted to your partner or that excite you about your partner? This is a really good exercise to do next time you're journaling or even if you are just have some time to kill, you're driving to work. Especially if you find yourself in a moment kind of grinding on your partner, right? This is so common where we're sitting there and we're thinking, oh, they're not doing this enough, or I want more of this in my relationship, or why can't they just be like this? When that's already running through your head, that's a really excellent time to meditate on this. What are the things that initially attracted me to my partner? What are the things that continue to attract me to my partner? When are those moments when I think, oh yeah, look at them. I'm so in love with them. They're so sexy. They're so compelling to me. When does that come up for you? And then another side of that coin is what about your partner really kills the mood? What's something they do that consistently turns you off? What are things that they could do better that would really change things for you? And of course, it's important to be careful about giving feedback like that. I don't want anyone listening to this to run home to their partner and say, Hey, look at this great list of stuff I wrote down about how much you suck and how you could be so much better in our relationship. Doesn't that inspire you? that's not going to go well. But this is a really great starting point for you having your own adult and sober assessment of your relationship and what could help to get it back on a more passionate track. And if both people in a relationship do this, and if they're both able to compare notes in a compassionate way, in a kind way, maybe check in with your therapist first and get some good strategies for how to have that conversation. But I think couples that enter into this kind of inquiry and then have communication around it, really understanding and compassionate and curious communication around it, those couples are going to be way ahead of the game. And I'd put my money on those couples for staying together, for continuing to have passionate lives together, and for overall finding their relationships to be more fulfilling. (laughs) So thanks for joining me once more for Gentleman. I just want to say before I go out here that to the men listening to this, you're allowed to be sexy in whatever way you want to be sexy. Whatever it is that makes you feel sexy, this is something you can define for yourself. Don't let somebody else tell you how to be sexy. I hope you'll join me next week. Thank you.